The last page has been turned on my most recent read and I'm enjoying my second cup of tea of the day. I really do need to start drinking more water, but it's just so chilly right now that the thought of having a cold drink really makes me shiver just a little bit. I was planning on doing something different again this week. I started the book and I am really enjoying it. But, and it's a really big but, I got so engrossed that it is taking me longer to read than I anticipated. So yesterday when I was planning on just watching as much as I could of Lucifer season three, yes, it is a rewatch, I realized that I was never going to finish this book in time. As I was on the phone with my mum, a regular three-hour event on a Saturday morning, I noticed a book beneath the very big pile of heavy tomes I've been collecting on my bookcase and definitely confused my mum as I said, I know I won't finish this one, staring longingly at the book I am almost two pages into on my coffee table. But there's always Agatha. Now, if you've been around for a while, you'll know I keep on picking up Agatha Raisin books, despite the fact that so many of them are really not books I've enjoyed as much as I enjoyed the TV episodes. Anyway, we're not talking about her. No, I am returning to the Queen of Crime and my favourite of her detective creations. I am going to be journeying to a small island off the Devon coast, and we're going to be meeting a bit of evil under the sun. So here I am, no spoilers, opinion filled and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and ex-coffee addict. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. There are going to be a few changes I decided on last week, so stay tuned in until the end of the episode to find out what they are. However... For this week's book, we're travelling back to 1941, when the late Queen Elizabeth was but a princess. The war had only just begun, though that doesn't get a mention at all. And apparently Devon and Cornwall were too hot in the summer, so people holidayed there frequently. I'm not joking, that's actually a line in the book. So light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp because a bit of atmosphere is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled depending entirely on when you're listening and your preference of course, no judgement here, and let's get started. To my mind that woman's a personification of evil, she's a bad lot through and through. It was not unusual to find the beautifully bronzed body of the sun-loving Arlena Stewart stretched out on a beach, face down. Only on this occasion, there was no sun. She had been strangled. Ever since Arlena's arrival at the resort, Hercule Poirot had detected sexual tension in the seaside air. But could this apparent crime of passion have been something more evil and premeditated altogether? The film of Evil Under the Sun is a regular Christmas viewing in my family, partly because we have a routine over the holidays, but also because my mum and I share a love of mystery. 
do we know who did it? Well, I thought we both did, but last year my mum missed the beginning of the film and spent the entire thing trying to work it out, which I found quite funny. Anyway, if you're anything like me, you'll probably have seen the film again pretty recently. If not, it's on BBC iPlayer in the UK right now, so don't shout out the ending. However, as with all film adaptations, there are differences between that and the book. The story starts with a brief introduction of how the hotel on Leathercombe Bay, Devon, came to be. And then we join our favourite Belgian detective as he is enjoying some relaxation with other holidaymakers at the Jolly Roger, a hotel, the name of which becomes a little more pertinent later in the book. Hercule is doing his usual studying of the various occupants of the hotel, Odell and Carrie Gardner, a well-travelled American couple who have connections with a few people who have encountered Poirot over time. They also seem to know everyone and are desperate to share this knowledge with everyone else. Miss Emily Brewster, who is described simply as athletic and gruff. Miss Rosamond Darnley, who is a well-known and skilled seamstress. Major Barry, who today would be considered a bit of a creep, watches all the female bathers and seems to think nothing of commenting on that fact, which is massively creepy in my book. Mr Horace Blatt. He's very fond of sailing, wants the hotel to be more lively and doesn't understand why people leave when he arrives. Reverend Stephen Lane, who is a little bit too intense. It is he who comments on an evil presence on the island. And finally, Patrick and Christine Redfern, a young married couple. He is charming and erudite, where she is quiet and unassuming. The group set up a rhythm on the island, which is disturbed by the arrival of the Marshall family, Kenneth, his wife Arlena, who was once an actress on stage and screen, and his 16-year-old daughter Linda from a previous marriage, who is a resentful adolescent that holds great dislike for her stepmother, and is not shy about admitting it. Now we have the whole party together, the fun can begin, but it's very clear from the moment that Arlena and Kenneth arrive that there is something else going on beneath the surface, and it's going to boil over at some point. This is an Agatha Christie after all. Though she does her very best to hide it, Rosamond Darnley's mood changes when she sees the Marshalls for the first time, and Hercule is the one to call her on it, stating that he noticed her attitude was different. Before Kenneth, Arlena and Linda stepped foot in the Jolly Roger, she was happy with her state as a single woman who had never had the opportunity to marry. However, her mood dipped when Kenneth arrived, and being as astute as we know him to be, Poirot connects this with Kenneth and his wife. It seems that Rosamond has known Kenneth since childhood, and not only does she feel he has bad taste in women, but she also has a tundra for him. Behaviour in the rest of the group has also changed. The Reverend Lane observes that there is evil on the island, and indeed he is the one who states that Arlena is the personification of evil itself. It's never clear what his reasoning for this is. However, the way he talks about Arlena and evil as one in the same always gives me the impression of his not being only obsessive, but also the sort of stalker who would collect locks of her hair to burn. Yeah, that kind of creepy. When the original group of residents initially spy Arlena making her theatrical arrival at the hotel, Mrs Gardner talks about someone she knew and how their marriage and life was destroyed when it was revealed that they were having an affair with Arlena. 
Later, we discovered that this person was a cousin she was very close to. So it seems that she too has reason to dislike the ex-actress. Christine Redfern is simply jealous. Her young and handsome husband Patrick is enamoured of the new arrivals and brought his young wife to the island in order to continue pursuing Arlena and persuading her into a dalliance. And then, of course, there is Linda, the petulant and resentful stepdaughter who loathes the woman her father has married and would do anything to see her gone, including a witchy curse. There is a considerable amount of setup in this book. Though we don't get to know much about the background of the individual characters, there does seem to be some sort of fate at play. Especially when Patrick Redfern and Miss Emily Brewster discover the dead body of Arlena Stewart on the beach near a cove that was once used by smugglers. She's been strangled, and with an island full of people with motives, it seems anyone could be to blame. Though of course evidence is discovered that proves it's definitely a man who committed the act. That still leaves half the residents, and they all have a motive of sorts. Apart from the man who discovered her, of course. While searching Pixie Cove, which I have to admit sounds like a beautiful location, white sands, caves and privacy, though difficult to get to, Poirot and Inspector Colgate, who has been brought in to investigate the murder, find very little evidence to help in the inquiry, but they do find some drugs in the caves which could indicate someone on the island is a murderer and a drug smuggler. As is the case with all Poirot investigations, there are a number of suspects and the path that leads to the real murderer is complicated and relies less on the investigation and evidence that Poirot finds than it does on his incredible ability to remember the obscure. And this case is no different when it comes to the unfortunate strangulation and death of Arlena Marshall. Feeling guilt and sure that she is responsible for the death of her stepmother, Linda is driven to attempt suicide by taking a handful of sleeping pills she stole from Christine Redfern. She is sure that placing a curse on the woman led to her death, and as she is more talked over than two, she is never dissuaded from this belief until it's almost too late. Luckily, she is unsuccessful, but it's touch and go, and I guess she's going to hate charcoal from now on. I'm not going to reveal who done it because if you haven't seen the film or read the book already, then I do think you'd enjoy it. However, I am going to say that the film helps you to come to the right conclusion with the inclusion of a mini prologue that takes up part of the last third of the physical book. Visuals of a cold case that fascinated the press and Poirot at the time. Remembering this old murder and another incredibly similar one, Poirot puts two and two together and comes up with the right answer, thus vindicating every other suspect. There is also a very clever moment that leads to the capture of the murderer, involving a pair of watches and time. And this really does cinch the deal, though I'm still baffled as to how Poirot works it out. Oh, and they also catch a drug smuggler, So for Poirot, Inspector Colgate and Colonel Weston, the Chief Constable, it's a definite win.
Evil Under the Sun is the 23rd Poirot book by Agatha Christie, released for the first time in 1941. The film was released exactly 41 years later in 1982 with Peter Ustinov playing our erstwhile detective. There are so many things to say that are good about Agatha Christie. And as I have already mentioned, I far prefer Poirot to Marple, though I'm not sure why. The funny thing is that Poirot has a much higher likability rating, at least for me, than Jane Marple. There is something about him that has influenced characters in more modern media. He's Adrian Monk. He's Bertie Carroll from Death on the Pier. While Jane Marple is the curtain-twitching neighbour I had while I was growing up, Doreen. Anyway, less of that, let's get on with the reviews. As you know, I like to provide a balanced perspective when it comes to the books I look at. And while my opinion will be what it is, taking a look at reviews from both ends of the spectrum can help. So before I give you my review, what did others think of Evil Under the Sun by Agatha Christie? I have to say that I was surprised at the number of reviews available after finding so few for my Rivals episode which is from last week, and I'll post the link below. The book achieved a 3.98 rating on Goodreads, but less than 1% of those are one star, and there are only six written reviews using that score, which I think is pretty impressive. Sanket wasn't a huge fan, giving Evil Under the Sun just one star. He said... Simply put, the people in this book are interesting and Monsieur Poirot is a good enough detective, however, trying too hard to become Sherlock Holmes. In any case, it does get interesting with its plot and progression, as slowly the mystery unravels and then, boom, in the final ten pages hits you with the biggest disappointment. It completely ridicules whatever the whole plot was built on and brings in new information about who is the murderer, making it really obvious, like you don't even have to think who the murderer is. It simply serves them on a platter at the very end, leaving a really bitter taste in the mouth. The reader definitely is betrayed by the ending. There are a total of 64,746 ratings for this book, including mine, but only just over 3,000 written reviews. I have to admit that I do need to get better at doing the latter. It's so easy to rate a book, but reviewing it takes time. Is a rating valuable? Yes, but without context, a rating can be quite demoralising especially if it's on the lower side. So next time you're thinking about giving a book two stars, think about why. I'm not saying don't give them two stars. You can give them what you really want if you really think the book, podcast, movie deserves it. But but think about a bit of constructive feedback that will let people know why you gave that score. And there ends my TED Talk on review scores for now. I'm sure I'll come back to it at some point because, as I said, I'm really bad at doing more than rating them. I really should write far more reviews than I do. Susan was a fan and gave the book five stars. Her review is well-researched and she gives good reasons as to why you should read the book. This classic Poirot novel started life as a short story, Triangle at Rhodes, which was published in 1936. Four years later, in 1940, the plot had been reworked into this excellent novel, one of the best featuring Poirot, in my opinion. 
The beginning of this novel sees Poirot on holiday at the Jolly Roger Hotel, Smuggler's Island. It's a wonderful location for a mystery, an enclosed community at the seaside. Of course, seaside holidays had been popular in the 1920s, and with foreign travel only available to the very rich, most people holidayed at home. However, we are aware immediately that this is a very exclusive location, not only because Poirot would certainly be very careful about where he stayed, but because other guests include a wealthy American couple, the Gardeners, and the beautiful actress Arlena Stewart, now Marshall. A young couple, Christine and Patrick Redfern, are also staying at the hotel, and it is soon clear that Patrick Redfern is smitten with Arlena Marshall, something which he does nothing to discourage. Agatha Christie really builds the tension in this novel, as the relationships between the various characters make the holiday atmosphere uncomfortable for those residents at the hotel, who are all too aware of Christine Redfern's embarrassing situation. To add more intrigue, one of the guests, and a favourite of Poirot's, is the successful dress designer Rosamond Darnley, who is in love with Arlena's husband, widowed Kenneth Marshall. Also on the holiday is Kenneth's daughter, 16-year-old Linda Marshall, who has a very difficult relationship with her stepmother. Of course, Poirot's holiday is disturbed by a murder, and although Christie novels are always exquisitely plotted, this is a particularly interesting puzzle with a great ending. I will not give the plot away. If you are lucky enough not to know how this novel ends, then it's an excellent introduction to Poirot and one of Christie's best mysteries. Utterly enjoyable and full of great characters, this would make the ideal holiday read. There is something strangely comforting about Agatha Christie's books. I know that they contain murder and mayhem, but the familiarity, the wildly different characters and the insanely clever way that the crimes are solved is reassuring. I've had affection for her work since I was a child, seriously, really young, and I started reading them at my dad's knee. Also, I am still trying to track down the last book we bought him before he died, so if anyone can remember a 1980s cover for an Agatha Christie that had a skull and a snake on it, I would be really grateful if you'd let me know. Let's get to my thoughts on the book. So... They are my views, remember, completely spoiler-free and 100% honest. Did I like Evil Under the Sun? I have to be honest and say that I prefer this book and film to both Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. Granted, both of those have been done time and time and time again. In fact, I'd say I'd go so far as to say they've been done to death. There is something different about Poirot's character in this one that makes him seem less self-righteous and more likeable. Is he still always right? Yes. But despite the fact in both previous books he was on holiday, he seems much more relaxed here. There is something almost sedate and friendly about him. When previously he felt more perfunctory, he had a purpose and that's all he was interested in. Though Evil Under the Sun and the other books in the Poirot series can be read as standalones, Colonel Weston has appeared before in Peril at End House, and Mrs Gardner mentions that she has been following Poirot's career in the newspapers, bringing up the murder of poor Lynette Ridgway that appeared in Death on the Nile. It is this moment that makes me think, because seconds later, Poirot declines a boat trip as he suffers from seasickness, 
For someone who has travelled across the world, often likely by ship given the time, that felt weird. But as with everything in Christie's books, I have no doubt there is a reason for it being included, however small. This was a pretty quick read for me that I got through in an afternoon, but that doesn't take away from the fact that the plot is full of twists and turns. I know that one of the reviewers felt the clues discovered by Poirot towards the end of the book gave everything away. However, I honestly feel that these elements, had they not been revealed, they would have made the case far more difficult and rang it out for so much longer than was necessary. Remembering something from an old case was the break they needed in order to resolve everything. Is there a tidy ending? Yes, but if I'm honest, that's what I want out of a cosy mystery. I like the fact that the perpetrator is caught and in custody rather than out there to cause more mess. Christie is part of the golden age of detective fiction and the queen of cosy mysteries, so it makes sense that the crime was solved and as the reader, I wasn't left with an ambiguous ending. Will I read more of Agatha Christie's Poirot? Right now, I have no more Agatha Christie on my bookcase, believe it or not. But I do have a considerable number of mysteries by other authors that I'm looking forward to sinking my teeth into. Sometimes we need a change, and this year I think that I will be searching out new cosy mystery authors. I do have a few on my net galley list right now, and I can't wait to open the first one. I think it's The Proof in the Pudding by Rosemary Schrager. So yeah, I'm reading a little bit further afield. As someone who isn't a massive fan of dark thrillers that give me nightmares, this is the perfect happy medium. I get a detective who solves the crime and a killer who gets put away. And I get a little bit of the 1920s, 1930s glitz and glamour, at least with some of the books I read. So if there is any cosy crime you love, let me know. I am on the lookout for more recommendations in this genre. If you're looking for something like this, or you loved this and want something else, then you'll love these. It's so difficult to think of new authors here, especially when I have old favourites that I cling to, like a mother taking their kid to their first day of school. There are a few, but I know I have mentioned most of them in past episodes. I am trying to branch out, as I've already mentioned, but when MC Beaton and Agatha Christie litter my shelves, I'm finding it a little bit difficult. Having run out, that's making it easier. There are a few that I have on my TBR right now that look enticing, including Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz and Murder at the Castle by M.B. Shaw. So keep an eye or ear out for reviews of those at some point in 2023. The last week, I have slowed on the reading a little bit as I have been working extra hours at the office to get a few projects out of the way. I've also been reading a single book for the last three days, but I do plan on reading a few of my NetGalley eARCs as the list is growing over the next week because I have some titles on there that I'm really excited about, including Atalanta by Jennifer Saint. Right now, I am reading book 12, but I don't anticipate my momentum will continue at this pace for the rest of the month. It's both unrealistic and pretty difficult to maintain long term, sort of like a diet that cuts everything but raw fruit and vegetables from it. 
My one pre-order arrived late last week and if you haven't seen me unboxing it then head over to my Instagram or my brand new TikTok being bookish reviews. Yes, I did set up a TikTok to have a look. I also have another pre-order due to arrive on Thursday and admittedly it's been a bit of palaver getting it due to a long-term issue I seem to be experiencing with Amazon and my ability to pre-order books on their site. It's getting very frustrating. Does anyone else have issues pre-ordering? I've had my account for 23 years this year and for the last 12 months I haven't been able to pre-order books more than two days in advance of release date. It's getting very annoying. My book buying ban, needless to say, has failed. But to be honest, buying books makes me happy. And if there's anything we really need right now, it's a little bit of happiness. So that being said, if there is anything on you, your TBR that you think I would love, I am not averse to getting more books. So definitely pass on your recommendations. You can send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram, and I will be sure to check them out. Last year, I asked all my followers across Instagram and Twitter about a book club and received a pretty positive response. However, it feels as though that has fallen somewhat by the wayside with the advent of the new year, probably lives getting in the way. Not, not surprising, to be fair. I am still going to be reading Circe by Madeline Miller. And if you want to talk to me about it or with me about it, do get in touch. I am now going to be making use of my fresh and currently empty YouTube channel and doing mini reviews that are completely unscripted, which is going to end up with me rambling because that's just how my brain works and a script helps to keep me in control. As I mentioned last week, the button for my newsletter has vanished from Twitter as they have closed the review platform. However, I have now moved everything over to MailChimp and you can sign up for the newsletter on my website beingbookish.co.uk. Well, that's it for this week and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod or you can see a single video right now on TikTok at beingbookishreviews. Otherwise, you can check my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Wow, that is going to start being a tongue twister sooner rather than later. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and a new book, which I've already started, is calling me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.